My name is Dr. Joanna Pagonis, and welcome to Tackle Tuesday. Tackle Tuesday is a podcast series that tackles different issues in the workplace. We explore topics such as leading with emotion, diversity and inclusion, and how to create resilient and agile work cultures. Today's episode is sponsored by Sinogap Solutions. We work closely with emerging leaders to help you develop a clear vision of your authentic self and to discover your passion and how it aligns with your purpose. Once you have a clear understanding of your purpose and vision for your future, you'll be able to discover your path for continuous growth along with the energy and enthusiasm necessary to sustain you during the most challenging moments in your life. We encourage you to visit our website at SinogapSolutions.com and explore the courses we offer that will help you develop the mindset and capabilities to be an inspirational leader. Hello and welcome to the start of Season 2 of Tackle Tuesday. Welcome everybody. I'm really excited to have as my first guest for Season 2, Christopher Spassoff. Uh, we have known each other for at least a decade, um, and we're actually partnering on a project together. And I'm so excited to have him on the show so we can talk a little bit about his background, his experience, what led him to becoming an OHS lawyer, and then at the end, share a little bit more information about our program. So um, I'm going to start off with a brief um, history or biography of Chris uh, before I ask him to share a little bit about his origin story. But first, I just want to say, hello, Chris, how are you doing? Thank you for being on the show. Hey, good morning. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invite to be here. It's an absolute privilege to help you kick off season two. Uh, I've been listening in to some of your podcasts in the past. Absolutely love the format, love the topics, and I'm really happy to be a part of it. So thank you very much. Yeah, you're so welcome. Okay, so I'm just going to start off with a little bit of a biography fee so everybody gets to know you a bit better. And then start with the icebreaker question of like, you know, what's your origin story and how did you get to where you are? But yeah, so Chris Spasoff is one of only a handful of lawyers with experience on both sides of the OHNS regulatory regime, having spent time as both a crown prosecutor and a defense lawyer. Now, don't let the suit and tie fool you. Uh, he knows his way around the courtroom, that's for sure. But in his ex but his, his experience in the field, which ranges from the design and implementation of risk management, plans to boots on the ground attendance at incident sites has allowed him to really understand the intangibles in this area. Now, Chris is often sought out for his practical, easy to understand advice and common sense approach to problem solving. Uh, Chris left the crown in May 2014, which is where I know him from, uh, from Alberta Justice and Solicitor General. And when he left in 2014, he did so so he could establish his own business, F2 Legal Counsel, where he now practices exclusively in the area of occupational health and safety. So Chris, tell us a little bit about how you became a lawyer and what led you to focusing solely in, in occupational health and safety. Uh, it's, there's a few different versions of that story out there, actually. The one that I'll share today is really at its core exactly how I ended up where I ended up. Um, at the time, I was working as a correctional officer, so still actually, interestingly enough, with government uh, here in Alberta, but was working as a correctional officer, and I had a very good friend that was prepping to go to law school, and she suggested to me that perhaps I should look into writing the LSAT. And so one evening, as I was sitting around with not a whole heck of a lot to do, I looked into what it would take to write the LSAT, booked myself in to write the last LSAT that was offered that particular year, 
uh, ended up writing the LSAT and actually did quite well on it. And it may sound as though I'm somewhat surprised saying I did quite well on it, but um, if I'm being brutally honest, at the time that I was registering to write the LSAT and that I took the LSAT, I wasn't fully committed to a career in law. And to this day, I genuinely believe that's why I did as good on the LSAT as I did, because I didn't stress out about it beforehand, went in with a clean mind, so to speak. So anyone out there that's that's contemplating writing the LSAT or a legal career, hey, that's my one piece of advice. If you go in to write the LSAT, don't stress out about it. I, I distinctly remember looking around that examination room and the sweat beads pouring down people's faces and that sort of thing. And for me, I'd done no practice exams, no practice courses, none of that sort of stuff. It was just kind of, uh, let's see how this goes. And it worked out really well. So did really well on it. Um, thought who does really well on the LSAT and then doesn't follow through with that. And so applied to law school, went to law school, obviously enough, um, made some really good friends, uh, enjoyed the subject matter of what was being taught and essentially ended up in a career in that sense. Now, with respect to health and safety in particular, how did I end up there? Um, I always knew that, or at least thought that I wanted to be on the crown side of the equation. As I mentioned, I was a correctional officer, and I understand there's ins and outs of how you're supposed to approach the law, how you're supposed to look at certain things, but I knew automatically that if I was going to be doing uh, criminal law or working throughout the criminal system, I'd want to be on the crown side of the equation. But as I developed through law school and, and as I started my career, I actually went to private practice instead of the crown's office at first. And when I went to private practice, good old Saskatchewan boy, I uh, went to a firm here in Edmonton that had a lot of Saskatchewanites, Saskatchewan Indians. Uh, should have probably gotten that term right before I started. But in any event, chose to go there, absolutely loved the firm. And it was right around the same time that occupational health and safety law was really becoming, quote unquote, a thing, if you will. Alberta had its first uh, crown prosecutor specifically designed to occupational health and safety matters. And it just seemed like a really good fit because you got all of the uh, benefits, if you will, of working within the criminal system, because the regulatory system is uh, de facto the criminal system, at least through the courts. So you got that type of experience and were able to bring that to the practice, but at the same time, didn't have to deal with some of the, the areas that I wasn't just comfortable dealing with if I would have been a criminal defense lawyer. So from that standpoint, that's really how I ended up in health and safety. And uh, feeling as though a person is making a difference regardless of which way uh, a particular file or matter sort of resolves itself is what's really kept me involved in that practice area and really encouraged me to pursue it. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. I didn't know that. And it's kind of neat to know that you spent a little bit of time in corrections because eventually my career and landed me there too, not as a correctional peace officer, but as the manager of strategic learning and development. And a lot of the research I've done is been looking at leadership and law enforcement specific to correction. So that's kind of neat to know that. Um, okay. So the next question that I'd like to ask you is because there's a lot of talk about compliance versus commitment. I mean, like the, the title of this podcast is called Moving Beyond Compliance. But a lot of my listeners, not all of my listeners, I should say, are, you know, come from the safety industry. And so the term compliance may mean something different for them. So can you explain in the field or in the realm of occupational health, health and safety, what does it, what does it mean to be compliant? It's a really great question. I, I think in a most general sense of the word, compliance just means you're doing what it is that you're supposed to be doing, right? You're complying with this standard. And so in the occupational health and safety context, when we talk about compliance, it's often used to refer to 
either compliance with the legislation or compliance with a health and safety system or program that an organization is trying to implement. But the thing about compliance is, as I mentioned, it's a matter of meeting a certain standard or hitting a certain standard. And it's often easy to get focused or caught up in um, believing or pursuing compliance as an end goal. When in reality, compliance is really, from my standpoint, and I think what industry and health and safety standpoint really should be, just one tool in, in a much broader picture. And so when we talk about compliance, as I see, it's often in a very limited scope, comply with the legislation, comply with the program. But quite often, legislation, the program, are only going to bring you to a minimum standard. And if you're only aiming towards compliance, I like to say, you're never truly going to achieve due diligence, which of course in the health and safety world is what everyone is striving to achieve, to really achieve self-actualization, if you will, when it comes to the internal responsibility system. And just focusing on compliance isn't going to get you there, in my opinion. You said two words that I'd like you to expand a little bit more for our listeners. One was, well, I guess it's four, four words. Due diligence is one term that I'd like you to explain. And then you talked about the internal responsibility system that I'd also like you to explain. So let's start with due diligence. What is meant by that? Sure. Due, due diligence is different things to different people, I suppose, is maybe the best way to put it. But from an occupational health and safety standpoint, and really from the legal aspect of occupational health and safety, due diligence means that you've taken all reasonably practicable steps to try to prevent an incident or an accident from occurring or to protect the health and safety of your workers. So some folks like to look at it as a big box of due diligence. We pull out this particular thing, we pull out that particular thing. I like to look at due diligence as a story. And I look at it as a story that you are telling or more particularly writing every single day at your work site through the information you share with workers, through the example that you set, through the direction that you give, the policies, the procedures that you implement, the hazard assessments that you write off. A lot of folks sometimes look at due diligence and say, well, it's this one particular big thing that we have, but really due diligence is all of those little things working together to make sure that your workers are safe, that they're kept healthy. And so it's those little nuances that really come together to get you to that point. And with respect to the internal responsibility system, the internal responsibility system, health and safety professionals that are listening to this are gonna say, oh my goodness, like you slaughtered that. We could talk about that for days. From my standpoint, the internal responsibility system is all about uh, making sure that everyone understands that they have a role to play at the work site. Everyone is responsible for their own and everyone else's health and safety. Kind of the idea that if one person or one entity drops the proverbial ball, someone else is there to pick it up. But really to me, what internal responsibility system means or internal responsibility means is exactly what you see in the language, internal responsibility. It's what's going on in the head, what's going on in the heart, and how that particular individual views, uh, views, excuse me, their role when it comes to health and safety and ensuring health and safety at the workplace. And so far too often I see health and safety or the internal responsibility system almost referred to um, in the third party where folks look at health and safety and say, well, we have a health and safety professional working with us. We've got safety folks that deal with that. We run that by safety all the time. We've got processes and procedures that deal with safety. Well, that's, that's not really getting at the heart of the internal responsibility system because 
if you're focused on internal responsibility, it's what your take is on those things, how you work with those things, how you utilize those tools. It's not some third-party individual that comes in once every few days and makes sure you've signed off on the paperwork. Okay, so if I understand correctly, when a supervisor and employer is being compliant, they're following the processes and the procedures and their safety, whatever is in, laid out in their safety management system, that's being compliant. What I'm hearing you say is when you really are practicing and focused on due diligence and letting, you know, and, and understanding that you have an a true responsibility in creating a culture of safety, you go beyond and above just the... Um, just the checklist, right? You you don't wait for somebody from OHNS department to come and tell you have you done your daily or monthly inspections. It's ingrained and is a part of who you are and how you operate, especially if you're a supervisor. So it's ingrained in your behaviors and it, it guides your values and how you interact with others. Am I understanding that a little? Is, is Does that make sense? No, I, that's exactly it. And it's it goes back to what I said about how if you're focused on compliance, you're never really going to truly achieve due diligence. And combine that with my comment about um, compliance really with legislation and, and practices, procedures, policies, that sort of thing, being the minimum standard. So the goal at any particular workplace is to achieve due diligence, which really is a nice way of saying that what you're trying to get is making sure that your workers come to work and get home at the end of the day in the exact same condition, right? That nothing has happened to impact upon their health and safety. And far too often, compliance sort of takes uh, takes the position as the end goal of that, and that's, that's not seen as the end goal. But compliance, the legislation, the policies, and the procedures are really all just tools designed to get you from that point A to point B. And so when I mention that, if you're simply focused on compliance, you're never going to truly achieve due diligence. Look at compliance almost as a roadmap. And that's really what the legislation, that's really what policies and procedures are. They're a roadmap to try to get you from point A to point B to get those workers home safely. But as with anyone that's ever taken a journey anywhere, you can look at the map. Heck, you can even have satellite navigation. And you can be listening to that little voice telling you which way to turn and the weather conditions here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, you're still the one behind the wheel. And the example that I'd like to give is you can have the best satellite navigation system or direction giving in the world, but if you're not plugged in internally, if you're not focused on the journey or more particularly, if you're not committed to achieving that goal or arriving at that end destination that you've set out for, if a deer pops up in the road and you're still relying on the satellite navigation, well, guess what, my friends, you're going to hit it. You're going to smoke that deer. So you have to be alive to what's going on. You can't just simply rest on your on your laurels, if you will, um, and not go that extra step, move it beyond just simple compliance. I've heard you use that analogy before, and I think I really get it now, especially because I just came from a, like a two-week road trip. <laughs> you know, you're, you know, my husband and I were like, we're going to do a road trip because it's not just about getting to the destination, it's about the journey. And, and I had to kind of remind myself that it's, don't be so task oriented all the time around checking things off your list. Enjoy the process or the journey in, in the case of this analogy. So stop periodically, 
you know, look around, see what's going on. Maybe get out of the car and see the sights. Interact with others along your journey. Just don't be so focused on getting to the end destination is what I'm hearing you say. And another thing that I'm also understanding too is when you talk about compliance versus or moving beyond compliance to get individuals in a company be, to be truly committed to safety or a culture of safety, you're, you're trying to steer people away just from a output focus to an outcome focus. What's the ultimate outcome that you're trying to achieve within your company culture to create the sense of, you know, um, commitment across the workforce so that people really truly embody what due diligence is and truly understand how to live the internal responsibility system. So I guess uh, maybe to help even our, our listeners and even for myself to get a, to make this a bit more, this concept more concrete. Can you give me an example of a leader? Because I believe this and maybe actually this should be my first question to you. Who is responsible truly in an organization for creating, for going, for be going, going beyond compliance? Who in an organization is truly responsible for going beyond compliance? I think it really, um, it's an interesting question, and it's it's a question that I'm starting to see more and more often, even in, in dealings with occupational health and safety uh, officers, the regulator, if you will, who in certain requests for information will ask, okay, well, who in your organization is responsible for overseeing this, for making this happen? Who's responsible for health and safety? And it's a really strange question from the occupational health and safety side of things because everyone is responsible for that. Like, fundamentally... The internal responsibility system says everyone is responsible for ensuring that this takes place. And in the broader context, what it's really all about, and you kind of you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but it's about creating a, uh, a particular culture, right? A culture that is safety conscious, that is committed to the end goal. And that starts, um, you know, there, there's different there's different theories or different ideas on whether that starts bottom up or top down. And, and you know, I we can talk about that if we want to steer the conversation in that direction. But ultimately, at the end of the day, everybody has to be on the same page in that organization. And there is oftentimes a disconnect between top down, bottom up. There's that middle ground where, you know, not everybody is really relating to it. And a big part of that turns into worksite behaviors, what supervisors, what leaders, what managers, et cetera, are conveying, whether through their actions, whether through their words, and to be quite to be quite blunt about it, how they themselves conduct themselves within an organization and the steps that they're taking on a day-to-day basis that other workers are looking at and saying, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. I see what's happening there. So, you know, it, it's a it's a company or organization-wide process that really needs to be delivered on. But of course, as with any type of, of gathering of people, and an organization is really that, people are going to naturally look to leaders to try to set the tone, to try to say, okay, what type of behavior should we be mimicking? Where do we set things up? And somewhere in this discussion, I genuinely feel like I've almost lost track of the question that you asked. (laughs) I'm being brutally honest on that. I have to apologize for that. No, no, you're answering it. Like I was, I was curious to know, like who is truly responsible for going beyond compliance? And I think what I'm hearing you say is, Although, yes, everyone, like just because I'm a frontline employee or I'm an operator, uh, I can still be an informal leader. 
I can still role model certain behaviors for my coworkers. I can still keep an eye out for them or report when I see something that's not safe instead of keeping my mouth shut. I get it. Everyone's responsible. But what I'm hearing you say is it's the leadership that sets the tone, that role models, that sets the standard of what the expectation is when it comes to safety. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think that's that's a good way to put it. I mean, if you look at the legislative requirements, everybody is responsible, right? And so everyone from workers to supervisors to the organization itself to suppliers to contractors to all of these various groups that are identified in the legislation all have this obligation. They've all got, it's worded a little bit differently with respect to each one, but they all have that one responsibility. Now, that all being said, fundamentally, if you look at an organization and you're trying to develop a culture, the question doesn't become, okay, well, who does the legislation say is responsible for what and what the role is, et cetera. You have to shift that conversation to, okay, now how do we go about developing that culture? And, you know, that's where someone like yourself that has that understanding of workplaces, leadership, you know, affecting change. That's what I absolutely love about the work that you're doing and about your book and, you know, all of the positive things that can be drawn from that and applied in the occupational health and safety context that's what I absolutely love about that work because it's bringing it outside of just what the OHS legislation says or what your policies and procedures say. And it's bringing in that, you know, for lack of a better term, human element of it, if you will, or that heart, if you will, to the whole notion of the head and the hands. Um, it's bringing that full center, right? And the thing about safety culture is you're not going to see the legislation refer to the word culture. I mean, it doesn't make an appearance. In, in fairness, I mean, someone out there will probably correct me and say, actually, somewhere in Schedule 5, you know, maybe there's somewhere that talks about a microbial culture or something to that effect. But culture in the sense that we're talking about, it doesn't really appear anywhere in the legislation. And yet, interestingly enough, I can tell you that in every single prosecution or every single successful prosecution, the one thing that they all turn on is that company or that organization's culture, right? And it's always put under the microscope. Legislation can't capture it. It tries to in various ways, but that's always what's looked at. And so you've got to find a way to affect change within that culture. And as I say, that's where folks like yourself and the research that you've done in your book and, you know, the ideas that you bring to the table are so critically important. Yeah, th thank you for that. I mean, just even... For my, not only just my own research, but even a lot of the research that I read that Gallup has conducted in their surveys, they, a lot of the research points to the fact that, you know, employees who are stressed at work, usually it's a result of the leadership or the ineffectiveness of leadership. And that in, through 2020, through the pandemic, they discovered, they, they, they tested employee engagement. And what they discovered was eight out of 10 Canadian employees are either actively disengaged or trying to sabotage their employer on some level. And I feel like that comes down to the leadership. Like that's what my business focuses on is how do you maximize the human potential in your organization? You, you do that by focusing on the quality and effectiveness of your leaders. And, and I truly believe that leader effectiveness comes down to emotional intelligence, which I call, as you said, it's like leading with the heart. So back to my original question before I decided to switch it up and ask like who's truly responsible for safety. I guess the next question I want to ask is, let's make this more concrete then for our listeners. Like what does it look like when a leader is going beyond compliance and creating, I guess, a team environment where employees can be truly engaged and committed 
to themselves and to the company? I think it's going to be very contingent on the workplace or the specific example that you're, you're focused on. But what I like to see is I like to see a leader that comes in and we'll use hazard assessments, okay? Because hazard assessments are, are something that, you know, every organization needs to be doing, needs to be doing with a high degree of frequency. And hazard assessments themselves are designed to prevent complacency in a worksite, right? To get you thinking about what could go wrong, how to prevent things from going wrong before you start working at a worksite. And yet, ironically enough, hazard assessments have kind of become tools of complacency or instruments of complacency themselves because they become simply checking off the boxes and simply, you know, filling them out. Yep, everybody is good. And that thought process doesn't really exist there. You know, a, a perfect example of demonstrating leadership comes from something as simple as a hazard assessment. Is that hazard assessment being approached in the context of it simply being a checklist or is the leader coming in, whether it's a foreman, a site superintendent, you know, or simply a worker that's stepping up to the up to the challenge that day and, and sort of grabbing it by the reins and saying, I'm going to be the one that fills this thing out today. Are they leading a discussion about it? Are they actively engaged, soliciting that feedback, listening to what it is that they're hearing from the other workers in terms of the risks and concerns that they have, and then collaborating to come up with a solution to that? I mean, it's, it's a very typical example of something that you'll see happen at the start of every shift for an organization, but it's such a simple situation in which leadership can be shown really at any level. And that's why I absolutely love, you know, sort of that particular example. Oh, that's a great example. And it makes me think to a, an interview that I'm going to give to, uh, for um, COS Magazine, Canadian Occupational Safety Magazine. One other question is, you know, what can employers do to encourage employees to, you know, I forgot the exact question, but ultimately, what can employers do to encourage employees to come forward with safety-related concerns and issues? And I think what you said is a really good way, is a great example of how a leader can do that. And it makes me actually think of a an actual, like a client of mine who's actually doing some of this work. So one of the things that they started to implement uh, for the managers and, and the uh, frontline supervisors is in, instead of just periodically doing the mandatory safety checklist, what they do is every day they do a walkabout or rounds, right? Where they go and they go onto the floor and they see how everything looks, make sure that everything's safety compliant, right? But it's an opportunity for them to actually engage the individual operators. How's it going today? Uh, you know, what challenges are you encountering or barriers that I can support you with? Or even just trying to get to know them on a personal level. Who had a baby recently? I heard your, your elderly parent has COVID is in the hospital. How are you doing? You know, that emotional connection and support, especially, let's be honest, during the last, the last two years have been extremely difficult and emotionally draining. Constantly living in uncertainty and lack of predictability can drain us emotionally and tax our levels of resiliency. So one of the things that my client has noticed is by just doing these everyday rounds, they've developed a better trusting relationship with their frontline operators so that the frontline operators feel safer to come and recommend improvements or changes or just bring to their attention safety-related issues. Because sometimes a safety-related issue means you have to shut down operations or a part of operations or a really important big machine that even just stopping the operation of this machine can cost the company money. And that can be a scary thing to do 
when you're not sure if your employer will support you if you bring that forward. So sometimes people stay silent and that's when an injury can happen. So knowing that I feel safe enough because I trust my supervisor, they trust me, they've made an effort to get to know me. I feel like I can go and tell them truthfully when I see something that's not safe. So that's what I'm hearing you say. No, exactly. And that's a fantastic example. I'm actually dealing with a client right now where that exact scenario took place where the the individual knew that work probably shouldn't be proceeding with respect to this particular issue that they had, but, you know, didn't want to quote unquote ruffle feathers. Um, and what came out after all was said and done, unfortunately, after the incident is that, well, it wouldn't actually have been ruffling feathers. I mean, the company wanted to know this information and wanted to obviously enough in that in that type of a situation shut the work down rather than proceeding and so you know that 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 was all disclosed but after the fact had that particular worker felt comfortable had that rapport that relationship been built in advance that information would have come out and what's really you know you want to talk about compliance versus commitment i raised it in the context of hazard hazard assessments uh you talked about in the context of inspections I'm going to bring it back to inspections a little bit with the example I'm talking about because an inspection, call it a hazard assessment, I suppose, was actually completed in this particular case that I'm dealing with. So legislatively speaking, compliance was given. You know, the hazard assessments need to be performed. You need to perform or or provide a report or prepare a report of them. Yep, that was done legislatively speaking. But the conversation beyond that about, okay, what's really happening here? Is there something that we need to be concerned about? Should we be shutting down work for whatever purpose, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? That's where the real value lied. And not having had that conversation ultimately is, you know, a huge problem now for this, for this corporation, notwithstanding that they did comply with the quote unquote statutory requirement to complete that hazard assessment, that failure to take it the step further is what lands them in hot water because you don't have that relationship established and that information is not free flowing. And when it comes time for a prosecution, and this goes back to, you know, the the whole concept about compliance versus commitment, but the Crown prosecutor, when they come into the picture, given, hey, I'm, I'm a lawyer on the panel, I might as well talk about the legal side of it. But when the Crown prosecutor comes into the equation and charges are laid, All they have to prove is, quote unquote, the actus reus. They just have to prove the breach of the legislation. Once they've proved the breach, it's proven beyond a reasonable doubt that you are non-compliant with the legislation. To stand back up and argue in your defense that, yeah, but look at everything we did to comply with the legislation. Yeah, but you're missing the point, my friends, because it's already been determined that you didn't comply. That's not the question. I would much rather have an organization come in and say, yeah, we did take steps to comply, but look at how committed we were to that end goal. Not to compliance, to the end goal here of achieving what the legislation is designed to achieve. That's what I want to see. That's what I want to defend. That's what you mean by due diligence and listening to their heart, which is truly what the internal responsibility system should be built upon. So here's a question then. When a when you've seen employers go beyond compliance and be truly committed and develop those relationships with their employees and actually listen to them when they come forward with safety issues, even though it may cost the organization some money, when you've seen an employer do that, what has been the end result? Uh, in term- Part of me is wondering, have they found themselves in a l- legal situation? Like, I mean, I guess ultimately what I'm thinking about is, 
when you can go beyond compliance, the likelihood of of encountering lawsuits or serious safety infractions gets drastically reduced. Yeah, it's that's exactly it. I mean, if, if you're able to go beyond just compliance, what you're really doing is you're bringing out due diligence, right? Incidents will happen. Despite your best efforts, unfortunately, things do continue to happen, right? Accidents will take place. The question is, have you actually done everything that you could reasonably do to prevent that from happening? Compliance with the legislation is one aspect of that, right? The legislators got together, they brought in industry experts, panelists, et cetera, and said, what do we think makes the most sense to try to keep workers in these unique scenarios safe? Okay, this is what we think it is. But again, that's just a guideline, right? And so if you're going beyond that, if you're committed and you have that level of commitment in your organization, we can talk about numbers and statistics and all of that, but fundamentally what it boils down to is it, it, it boils down to having the ability to stand up to look in the mirror before you go to court, perhaps, or before challenging an order or an administrative penalty or something along those lines, and genuinely say to yourself, yeah, I genuinely believe that we did do everything that we could do to prevent this incident from happening. And, you know, I'll put it in a different context. There have been files that I've been involved in where I, I wholeheartedly believe we could defend the charges that an organization is facing, okay, that, that we could wholeheartedly defend the specific, you know, five to seven counts that they're facing. But I look at the organization, I say, okay, commitment's not there though. Yes, we can, we can defeat those specific charges as they are drafted. But the level of commitment, given my conversations with the organization and given some of the things that I've seen happen, given some of the failings at the managerial or the supervisory level, that we can't get around. And so even though we can maybe defend these five charges, if we go to court, and for those of you that have ever, you know, it's, it's not exactly like TV, somewhat to some degree, but the prosecution is always going to be given an opportunity to amend the charges, right? So, I mean, just because they lay the charges a certain way does not mean that that's, oh, we can beat those charges, fantastic, so I guess we're good to go. Well, not necessarily, because after the evidence is called, they can amend those charges. And so there have been scenarios where I've been a part of where even though we could defend the charges that have been brought, because there's a, a broader systemic failure with respect to that issue of commitment, I've actually had to recommend to the client, listen, we can take this the distance. I mean, yes, I think we can defend those five to seven, but here's the problem. When worker ABCD or manager FGH gets put on the stand and this comes out, that we don't have this commitment, that our culture is suffering in that sense. The charges are going to be amended and we're going to be found guilty, you know, because we didn't live up to that expectation. We still didn't deliver on that end goal. Just because the Crown didn't charge it that way initially doesn't mean that we're not necessarily still going to end up having to suffer from that. So it's a very difficult conversation to try to have with an organization to say, listen, we're good here, but the bigger problem prevents us from actually being good. Right. So, uh, again, kind of a little bit of a tangent from your from your question. But, uh, hey, you know what? It's an unplugged, unscripted session. So it's kind of whatever comes to mind from that standpoint. No, that sounds good, too. That makes sense to me, because I'm also thinking the reverse could be true, that if they were to put on to be put on the stand and they could prove or articulate that they did have an internal responsibility system, that they did go beyond compliance and were truly committed. The charges could be amended in the reverse way, right? Like that they, they won't be charged. They won't be found guilty. They, you know, the, yeah. Okay. So I see that. Okay. Go ahead. 
yeah, I can actually build on that a little bit. And I mean, if that level of commitment is there, it doesn't even necessarily make it to trial. And that's one area where I've had a lot of success is actually bringing that level of commitment out because when occupational health and safety gets involved, they're going to be asking for compliance-related documents, by and large, right? I mean, they're asking for uh, materials related to this particular perceived breach. And what I like to do when I get involved is, of course, to go beyond that, to look at that level of commitment and say, okay, what else do we have on top of just this that we can package together nicely and maybe approach the Crown Prosecutor with and say, listen, yeah, look at all of this, but look at how committed we were to this. Look at how committed we were to that end goal and all of the steps, all of the efforts that we put into place to prevent this incident from happening. And if you have that information available, if you're able to actually look at it, and I like to say, you know, I would much rather be able to grab a random worker and have a conversation with them and have them explain to me how they do a procedure and why they do it that way and what the risks of it are then have a nice piece of paper that sets it out in a safe work procedure. I would much rather have that discussion and know that they understand that they have that level of comfort, et cetera. If we have that and we can go back to the Crown, quite often the Crown will look at the file and say, okay, well, we see that you have due diligence here. We see that that commitment has, uh, you know, has been developed, has been fostered, has been nurtured. And so we're going to pull the charges because at this stage, we no longer believe we actually have a reasonable likelihood of prosecution. Now, as I see, it doesn't even necessarily need to make it to the stand. There are cases where it does. And in those sets of circumstances, you know, it's, it's another feather in the cap for a successful, uh, successful defense. But really, if you have that system in place, it prevents that from ever taking place to begin with. So how do we teach supervisors, leaders, the skills that they need to create a, a committed workforce? And I think this is where I'd like to hear a little bit more about, well, your take on our, our program, right? Because this is something that we're doing together. The course is called Moving Beyond Compliance. And I thought maybe we could spend a little bit of time talking about it. And what led you to wanting to partner with me uh, to create this course and how really the purpose is to enable supervisors or leaders to create that culture of commitment? Yeah, well, I'm super excited about the course. I'm super excited about the opportunity to work with you. And if I'm brutally honest, what led me to, you know, to wanting to partner with respect to this particular course um, it was seeing the work that you were doing, right? It was reading through your book and doing so, I found myself sort of nodding and saying, yeah, 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 and agreeing with it more and more and more and more and applying it to the health and safety context. Because of course your work is broader than just health and safety, but it really came down to me to seeing what was missing, right? And reading through and, and hearing you talk about emotional intelligence and all of these various things, to me, it became crystal clear that that is what is missing in the health and safety context. And you know, to borrow sort of a, an analogy, great with the analogies. And in fairness, I don't know if this one came from you, myself, or if we kind of developed it together, but I think occupational health and safety has always been really good about the head and the hands, if you will, the knowledge and then the actual practicality of it, the, the practical application of certain skills and of certain processes and procedures and that sort of thing. But what's been missing from it is the heart. And so that's, as I see, what your research and what your work really captures and it's the one question that has always kind of been difficult for me to answer. Um, you know, I, I've spoken with different groups. I have a number of clients who say, okay, we get it. We understand. We understand where we need to be headed, how we need to arrive at this destination, the end goal, et cetera. How do we do it? How do we bring about that change? How do we give effect to that change? And a lot of times I'm left struggling to say, well, I mean, there's, 
you could look at maybe this particular, it's not really related, but it's something because there just hasn't been something there to fill that gap. And so in terms of how do we do that, I mean, that's where I am so happy to be able to reach out to someone like yourself and say, hey, this is this is how we do it. I mean, this makes perfect sense. And the fact that, as you mentioned, we've known each other for a decade and, and sort of we've got that background of that history as well, just makes it all the more awesome from my standpoint. So I'm like, who is it? Who is this that's writing this and saying, oh my, right? Like it's craziness. I mean, when we started to get together to talk about how would, what would we offer um, as a partnership, uh, it took time, right? It took two years for us to, to design this program. But I think ultimately what we decided was we, how do you equip a supervisor with the skills to lead with the heart? So first you try to identify what those leadership behaviors are. And then you give them an opportunity to practice them. I call it active experimentation. But that they do that in their own workplace setting. Each workplace, although probably has some similarities, especially in the safety industry, each workplace has its own unique uh, systems and processes and ways that they do things. And, and what I've discovered being a learning and development specialist is people have a hard time transferring the knowledge that they learn through a training uh, experience to their workplace. And so what we try to do through our program is to give them an opportunity to think about their unique workplace context, bring that into the training environment that we've created for them, and then give them an opportunity to take the skills that they've learned and apply it with our guidance over the course of 30 days and then come back and through a coaching session, a group coaching session, talk about that experience and what they learned from that through the network that they've created with the other participants. So blending self-paced online learning with live facilitated a workshop and then active experimentation in their workplace and then coming back and then diving deep into what they learned through a coach approach uh, is one of the things that I've learned that really increases the likelihood that people will, you know, that their behavior will change and that their skills will improve and they'll develop more confidence around being, knowing what it takes to be an effective leader is I think what we ended up, well, I think I know is what we ended up essentially doing. I am very excited to offer the program. Well, and what, what really excites me about it is it's not cookie cutter, right? Not only is it not cookie cutter, but I mean, you hit it bang on when you mentioned, you know, you've got the experience in developing these types of courses and in, I mean, this is what you do, right? And this is what your research focuses on. And so when I've had clients come to me in the past and say, you know, how do we approach this? Where do we start, et cetera? There was never really something out there to point to. And I mean, I could throw something together, right? Lots of us could say, hey, well, we'll pull some stuff off of the Google and put something together and make some sort of a cookie cutter sort of program or framework or session or seminar. But really, that's nowhere near going to provide someone with the, the level of impact as what we've developed here, right? And I mean, yeah, okay, fine. Pat myself on the back a little bit. Pat you on the back more so because, I mean, really, um, as I'm saying, this is the type of thing that I would look at and say, okay, yes, as a lawyer, I know how we need or what it is that we need to do, but how do we actually get there? And so that's why I think it's just so great to have someone with your experience. I mean, you do this for a living, right? And not only do you do this, the course design and that sort of thing for a living, but this is what your research is into. So it's just, it, it's, it's the perfect fit from my standpoint. And I'm really, you know, I'm really happy to see the positive response and the positive feedback that, that it's gotten to date. And I'm really excited to see how it rolls out and, and, you know, to start, 
providing industry, providing employers with something that they can actually look at that is going to get at the heart of culture, that's going to get at the heart of changing that organization instead of just simply sending them for a one-day course somewhere and saying, okay, away you go. I mean, that's, you know, we, 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 we've all been to those courses, right? I mean, sometimes you get a good lunch, sometimes you don't, but it doesn't really capture what it is that we're trying to, that we're trying to arrive at here. And right now, registration is actually open. It closes on October 3rd, and the program launches on October 4th with the first phase of what we call pre-engagement, which is a self-paced online learning before we come together in mid-October for the workshop. And then again in November, um, after the active experimentation for the facilitated coaching session. But we're also thinking about... Um, having another cohort in the new year, early 2022, either January or February. A lot of people have told us that that's a better time for them too. So we're going to offer another one in the new year, but we'll put the link to the program in the show notes. If you're interested in learning more about moving beyond compliance, and if you're interested in enrolling to either in this cohort number one, or if you're thinking about maybe in the new year would be better for you, all the information will be there. Now, obviously, if you have any questions, you can reach out to us. I'll put Chris's information and contact info in the show notes. But Chris, is there a better, is there a great way for, or like, what's the best way for people to contact you? Obviously, I'm going to put your link to your website in the show notes, but are there other ways too? It's probably the best way uh, to get a hold of me is just by going through the website, maybe shooting me an email, giving me a quick call, leaving me a voice message. I mean, I am on social media, but as you'll see, it's sporadic at best when I'm on social media. If there's something that I'm particularly passionate, you'll probably see a tweet or something to that effect from me. But uh, I'm not the most active or well-versed on the on the social side of things in that sense. So uh, website, probably easiest. Email, probably easiest. I also wanted to mention, um, if and there has been a fair bit of interest from the standpoint of putting on or bringing a, a beyond compliance to a specific organization or to a specific employer or sort of privately putting that together and, and crafting something unique to that specific employer, that's certainly an option as well. And if that's something that you're interested in or you think your organization would benefit from, by all means, please do reach out to myself or to uh, Dr. Pagonis. Um, it, it is the type of thing that I think there's a lot of value in signing up for one of the existing sessions because you don't have to run your entire team through something. You can come out, see what it's all about, and I have every bit of confidence that you'll see the value in it and want to bring it back to your to your own organization. That's kind of why we set it up the way that we did. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Well, that actually brings us to the end of our show. So, Chris, thank you for being the first guest on season two of Tackle Tuesday. It was, it was great to, well, it was really honestly to get to know you a bit better and learn things about you that I didn't know about you before. So thanks so much for being a guest. No, as I mentioned earlier, it's an absolute honor to be here. I feel privileged to be the first guest on season two. So uh, thank you very kindly. I look forward to listening in to you uh, to future episodes. And thank you very much for your listeners who spent a little bit of time with us today. So thank you once again to Christopher Spassoff from F2 Legal Counsel, and thank you to all of my listeners. I look forward to tackling the next issue with you. Goodbye, everyone.